Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. Before we get started with this episode, I wanted to apologize for some audio issues due to first-time use of new equipment. We've resolved these issues, and they won't happen going forward. This episode has some really awesome content, and our guest Sean Brown has a ton of valuable insights to share, so I encourage you to please continue listening. Thank you. So, hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. Uh, Shelly Nelson is not joining us on this episode. Uh, Welcome to the Innovation and Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. So today, we're very excited to have Sean Brown with us. Sean is the president and CEO of a very successful startup here in Chicago called YCharts. Sean has spent the last 25 years leading technology-centric companies of all sizes to success in hyper-competitive markets. Markets. What's required to be successful in such unique environments, Sean has a proven process-oriented approach to achieve results with significant experience aligning vision, product, go-to-market, and operational plans to achieve measurable commercial objectives. We're really excited about having Sean on today, so welcome to the show. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having me. So, Sean, if you wouldn't mind kicking us off, tell us a little bit more about your, your current business, Charts. So I'm the C- I'm a CEO of Ycharts, and Ycharts is a cloud-based Swiss Army knife for making better investment decisions. So a uh, lot of different tools to help people select securities, monitor the markets, or uh, do all the things they do to succeed, including communicating with customers. So you guys have been in business, you said earlier, about a decade now? Exactly. That's pretty exciting stuff. So, you know, funny enough, we, we talk about you. <laughs> you actually have a, a actual office. Yeah, we. I guess that's the, the the brag point is when you get to a certain stage with a startup that you are willing to commit to a lease. That's something that your business is viable. Yeah, you know that uh, that personal guarantee, right? When you have to sign that five year lease, you know, and you personally have to guarantee it. And when you you've got a successful business like you do, they they. You don't have to do those personal guarantees anymore. Yeah, I will. I will caveat things that uh, I had a predecessor who founded YChart, so he took a lot more personal risk than I did. I, I came on three years ago. Very good, cool. So, uh, Sean, one of the things uh, we talked about that I really like to dive into is a little bit about your background. Uh, you've got a playbook that we talked about before, and there's a couple things there that I think we could dive into that I think uh, our audience would really appreciate hearing your experience and, and how you leverage that kind of playbook. And, and I think it's really insightful stuff. So why don't you dive into your, your background a little bit, uh, tell us how you got to this point and, and you know, maybe a little bit about uh, where you see yourself going as well. Hey, and first thing I'd flag up front is I'm, I'm humbled to be talking about success. Um, most of my achievements have been because I've learned from failure. So I would flag things by saying, um, I'm happy to share. Um, it's, it's, it's by making some mistakes along the way. But my background, I grew up in a very big family, a very transient family. My dad was an executive. We traveled all over. The, we moved all over the country. And um, I learned very early in life that you better embrace change. And you also 
the best way to succeed in business and in life is to surround yourself with really good people. And I've translated that to business. I have a very, very close family. And I've always tried in my career to have a family-based culture. But change, I have always thrown myself in way over my head um, in anything. I graduated from college with a finance degree and knew nothing about technology. And I decided the best way to learn about technology was to become a software engineer. So just an example of, for me, embrace change. If you have fears or trepidation about something, you should probably charge full force at it. And so bringing that to my career, um, I've had 25 plus year career leading everything from startups to divisions of private equity backed firms to playing leadership roles in public companies. And so I've, I've grown companies of all sizes, I've sold companies of all sizes, and I've bought a lot of companies in my capacity. So that's a quick one on my career. No, I think that's great. I think the, uh, quite a few of the people have come on and talked about how culture uh, evolved out of like the startup and more of the uh, fast-growing organizations really recognizing the value of having that kind of culture and, and creating a tribe or a family, as you said. So I worry sometimes that people see that kind of concept and like think it requires leniency. So like when it comes to family and being a family, that doesn't mean just hugs all around all day. Oh, that's that's a really important distinction. Um, there was a lot of fighting in my family growing up, a lot of squabbling. Six kids with six different interests and six ideas of what they want for dinner. And, and conflict is a part of life and it's part of business. And I actually think you should stimulate it. And so a good culture is candid, is not afraid to fight, but there is always the element of mutual respect and a common bond. And so those are my big things with culture is it doesn't mean being it doesn't mean you don't fire people. It doesn't mean you don't disagree with people. It means you respect them and you're bonded to them and you do your best to work things out. That's good stuff. Uh, we were not as big a family, right? We only have four, but uh, I had this phrase growing up, there's two people in our family, the quick and the hungry. <laughs> so I, I agree with you. It's a, everybody got some. Some people just got more. Yeah. <laughs> That's great stuff. And I, I appreciate that concept because I think those are those core things that like embrace change, right? Surrounding yourself with the right people. So that unifying vision, right? Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to dig right into the playbook, but I really think the difference in, in good leadership and mediocre leadership really is like having that vision that gets people want to take action to, to keep taking action after you've hit the inevitable speed bump. So what do you do to help refine and build that? Because i got to believe for you, it's a moving target at times. Yeah. Well, first thing I tell you about me related to business is I'm very much of a KISS believer. Keep it simple, stupid. I, I just don't think business is that complicated. I think you can overcomplicate it. But much like in the military, the vision needs to show you what hill you need to take. You need clear roles and responsibilities on how you're going to take that hill. You need to be aligned around what you're trying to achieve. You need no BS and clear communication along the way. You need to execute on your plan, but you also need to realize your plan is going to change. So to your thing about vision, what's the hill you want to take? 
And I think the best way to define that hill in business for me is to really know your target customer so intimately well that you can clearly point to a problem you're trying to solve. And then you can align your product and your whole organization to attack. So in that case of like really understanding the problem, right? I use the term, you have to love your customer. Empathy is not enough. You have to know them intimately and to a certain degree, like live their life a little bit of like, I, I really get what they're doing. Does that mean you spend a lot of time with your customers? Does that mean you spend a lot of time with like specific customers or how do you go about getting to know them or getting to know their problems so well? Yeah, I don't believe you're going to have the right level of product market fit unless you can describe every moment of your target customer's life. You need to know what they were doing five hours before they used your product. You need to know what they were doing two minutes before. You need to know what they were doing three minutes after. You need to know when they eat breakfast. You need to know what's going on in their head. You need to know them intimately well. And how you get the information? You just talk to them. Hmm. You, you sit down. You have discussions. You look for trends in the discussions you have. You bounce your ideas back off them. You collaborate with them. And then through time, you get better and better and better at having a perfect fit. It's very interesting. So I think that's really important, uh, obviously. So what do you think if you were going to talk to one of our, our listeners and say they're in pursuit and they say, that sounds like one of the problems that we've got. How do you go about learning what they're doing every day, every minute? How, how do you go about figuring that out? Yeah, a lot of lunches, a lot of dinners. Um, you can use some imperfect things like surveys, um, but you get them talking and you close your mouth <laughs> and, and you get real big ears and you repeat, 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 and you'll find it. Yeah. Or you'll find out you got nothing. No, I, uh, some of my best coaching is simply, okay, do this and then shut up. <laughs> Right? Like, no, don't, don't take it for a walk. Yeah. Don't, don't show everybody how smart you are. Right? Like, just shut up and listen. One of the big recruiting uh, tactics we use when we're evaluating something for a sales role or a customer success role is do they listen a whole lot more than they talk? Because if you're listening, and I love somebody who comes in with real big ears and a real small mouth, I want to <laughs> hire them right away. Well, uh, as a guy who's got really big ears, I'm <laughs> uh, he's not speaking physically about that. You know, Dumbo's yeah. got nothing on me. I find that very interesting. And I think uh, it's something that I've witnessed as well. The really successful, I hate to use the term sales leaders and things like that, but like, they're just better questioners. I, I, a former uh, girlfriend of mine, her dad was uh, Area 5 detective here in Chicago. And like, I always thought he'd be an amazing salesperson mm -hmm. just because the amount of questions and curiosity and just natural and how he could make every conversation fun and just probe. And I'm like, yeah, this is, this is the skill set you need to be. There's a lot of people who think I go in and I, I, I wham, bam, and I show yeah. off and it's like, not if you don't know them, right? Not if you can't tie, like, to your point, like, yeah. why is this product meaningful to them, right? Yeah. What does it answer for them? Not what is it, what do I think is cool about it? Yeah. In the software industry, which I've always been in, there's a specific role, product manager, mm -hmm. who I would say it is absolutely their job description. 
to know your customers intimately well. But when you get beyond the product manager, I tell my teams, it's all of your jobs. I don't care whether you're our bookkeeper or the person answering the door or the phones, you're going to be much, much better at your job. And we're going to be better at the company if you can describe our customer and how you impact them. So is that something you say with those types of personas that, you know, you're, I think you, you touched on a couple of things that I think are really important for people, specifically as you're moving in that digital enterprise, right? Where moving from that project to product mentality, right? Like products is, is just, that's what I, I think there's a lot of, when you talk about digital transformation, I think there's some block and tackle stuff about like, how do you actually start building digital products? Not just turning everything into some buzzword from Gardner. But like the concept around a product manager, right, is a relatively new concept uh, in many spaces outside of the product companies, right? So like they're, they're not new. Like Microsoft had, you know, product managers for a long, long time. But like I see that infiltrating into other organizations. And like, so is it the product manager's job to create that awareness for anybody who's working on, and not just in like a software product, but anywhere else? It's like, are they supposed to share that? I guess, how do you get that out to everybody? Yeah, great question. I think the first thing I'd say is, I think a world-class product manager helps you with three things. One is they've got a very strategic competence they're listening to the market, they're speaking in the market, they're learning. Number two is, and in a software company, they've got a technical and operational competence. They're able to translate the strategic thing into product requirements. The third thing they have is a sales and marketing focus. They understand that you can understand the market and you can create a great product, but unless you can market and sell it, it's sitting on a shelf somewhere. Mm-hmm. So. To answer your question, I think the product manager who is world-class not only displays those three competencies, but they lead your organization in making sure the knowledge is transferred to how does this information impact how I sell to a customer, how I onboard them, how I support them, and how I evolve our product. Well, yeah, it's... As a, just so we do software delivery for people, we do uh, consulting as well. But like, I can tell you, it, it's cr- it's critical that that product manager is beyond competent, right, for us to be successful, right. I, I think the breakdowns that I see are you could have a great engineering team and you could have great market fit, like you said, yeah. but if you can't deliver that message, you know, they they kind of live in a, in a swivel chair life of like, yeah. you know, they yeah. got to serve three different masters. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's one of the mistakes startups make is they say, we'll wait before we hire that keeper of the customer, that voice of the customer. And they say, oh, the CEO can do that or the head of engineering or the customer support person. This is not a role where you can be split brain. You need to wake up every day saying, what's going on in my customer's head? And it's tough to do that while you're saying, I got to hit my sales number, or I have five trouble tickets that I have to manage today. You lose a little bit of focus on the customer. So I'm a big believer that hire a great product manager early in your life cycle. 
Couldn't agree more because I see a lot, I've seen a lot of money get wasted on mm -hmm. missed targets because mm -hmm. of that mistranslation of what is the customer's needs, yep. right? Especially considering how much it costs to build software nowadays. Yep. Product managers are a small price to pay. So mm -hmm. uh, that's great stuff. I, I do want to touch on some of the other things that we, we covered before. You know, um, there's, I think, uh, when you get into the, the culture, right? And I want to like hammer on this too often, but you know, one of your, one of your, you know, why don't we take a step back? Why don't you go through your playbook? And like, yeah, I thought that was really great stuff. So why don't you cover that? And we'll, we'll dive into a couple of pieces. Sure. Yeah. Um, again, through trial and error, my playbook has a few components. Everybody, I really love when the humility comes out of like, we all know we got our butts kicked, right? Like that's, nobody got through this without some debts, yeah. right? That's right? The only people who are crystal clear are the ones who quit. That's right. Right. So if, if you, if you don't have damage, if you didn't learn through failure, mistakes, yeah. you didn't learn. That's right. right. You're in a little world of perfection. So Sean, you don't have to keep saying okay. it. Right? We, well, <laughs> well, listen, my, pre my playbook has worked for me on all kinds of different size companies. And it's pretty simple. It's have a great vision. Number two, have a really good strategy for how to achieve that vision. Number three is put a huge emphasis on team and culture. Number four is get everybody aligned. And the last one is execute, execute, execute. So simple playbook. And happy to talk about any component of that you want me to get into. Yeah, I, I do like uh, something you touched on before is that the, this keeping things simple. Because again, as, as an engineer, I think I have a, and I think many people like us engineering folks have a proclivity to overcomplicate, right? Like yeah. over engineer. Especially using the word like proclivity. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the word of the day. So, you know, I had to work it in somewhere today. I don't even know if I use it right. I just throw it out sometimes. <laughs> oh, good buddy of mine. It, like, sure, oh. it sure sounded good. <laughs> good buddy of mine. He's, he's, he's one of those really smart guys I know, also a graduate of Notre Dame, who when I'd have conversations and I'd say words, everybody else just nods and goes along with it. He's like, yeah, that you made that one up. Right? <laughs> okay, so you caught me, John. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I think the, the keeping things simple, right? Like when we talk about like, you know, strategy, right? So... You know how do you how do you keep things? Because I think about when when you're when you're formulating like your your plan, right? There is the big strategy, right? Mm -hmm. And like here's what we're so strategy and then tactics, right? So mm -hmm. how do you translate the strategy into tactics that you can coach people on? And so how do you? What are some of the things like when it comes to like keeping it simple? Yeah. Um, and maybe that, is there any experiences in your in the in white charts recently where you you've had a a lesson to learn that you could share. Yeah. So let me first tell you uh, what strategy means to me. So if you got a vision, which is what hill do you want to climb? First of all, define that pretty precisely. You know, don't say I want to get in shape. Say I want to be able to run a marathon in an eight minute mile pace by October 24th. That's a vision. That's where you want to get to. So if you got something very tangible, you create a strategy. And I always look at strategy and I say, it's right to left thinking. The right 
is where do you want to get to? The left is where are you now? And it's the lily pad jumps you need to take to move from the left to the right. And I've always found a very simple tactic, which is don't start by thinking about the left and what the next move you can make. Think about the right. What is the next to last move you need to make? And then move backwards from there. So there was a, a really wonderful quote from Dwight Eisenhower that was, no battle was ever won without a plan. But then again, no battle was ever won according to plan. It says to me, when you create your lily pad picture, directionally execute on it, but don't be so wedded to it that you don't notice that things are going to change. So back to U.S. for a specific example. Y charts, we have certain growth goals. And to get to those growth goals, we said eventually we need to be serving multiple market segments. But our today, when we made the plan, said we were only serving wealth advisors. We knew to get to our growth goals, to get to 25 or 50 million in revenue, eventually we needed to uh, address multiple market segments. So we worked backwards from there and said, what are the segments that are like the wealth advisor segment? And we said, it's the asset manager space. It may be the retail space. It may be the broker-dealer space. And we worked backwards from there and said, how would we get to a point in time where we had a relevant solution for them? And so working backward, getting a plan in place helped us then assign accountability, get in execution mode, and then revisit how we do it on that plan. So that's about strategy for me. So when you're going through that and working the left to right concept, do you find that that helps engage more of the team when you're having those conversations? Do you get more people involved like, hey, how are we going to do this? Yeah, I mean, this is this is another page from my playbook when I talked about uh, culture and team. I believe in being unbelievably transparent with your team. I was on a flight on Southwest Airlines probably 20 years ago, and I got on the plane, and I came rushing. The door was about to close. I got on the plane, and I was the seventh passenger on the plane. And I got on and I looked at the flight attendant who was standing in the aisle and I said, wow, I'm really surprised this flight is taking off. Most airlines, if they saw they were going to have seven or eight customers, they would cancel the flight and they would tell you there were mechanical issues and they would inconvenience you. I'm so excited that I was able to get on this plane and get to my business destination. And the flight attendant, pivotal moments in my career, the flight attendant said to me, Oh, this flight was very profitable. Well, it was marginally profitable. We make most of our money below the plane on the cargo hold. So any passenger over five is profit margin. Now, I'm sure these economics aren't exactly the same now, and I may have the numbers slightly off. The importance of the, the anecdote for me was the flight attendant, who was not paid to know the fundamental economic drivers of the business, understood those drivers and knew enough to have a small celebration in her head to say, my company is making money on this flight. And I walked away from there and said, in my career, I'm going to err on the side of sharing our strategy, even if it has nothing to do with what that individual needs. I want them to know because it's going to pay dividends through time. Wow. I, there's a great book called uh, Great Game of Business. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's about that type of transparency of 
everybody understands how they contribute, right? So, uh, and that's awesome stuff. One, I agree 100% when people know and are empowered to make good decisions on behalf of the business. But don't you also find that that kind of transparency creates more trust, but also... I just having worked at large organizations where you're left out of those conversations because it's a waste of your time is the way that it's considered, right? It's not worth your time. Mm-hmm. You want you to go back to the to the lab box and run mm-hmm. your wheel and you know don't worry about yeah. what the big kids are doing. But then don't you think like with the lab if they if she didn't have that person didn't have that information, they might be thinking, hey, this company's struggling. These are bad decisions, right? So don't you think the lack of transparency creates the opportunity for a lot of misunderstanding of like what's going on. Absolutely. It also treats employees like children. And I don't believe employees should be treated like children and they should be treated like adults. If the business is succeeding, we should all know that. If the business is struggling, we should all know that. Now, it's the job of the leader to package that in a digestible way. And I wouldn't come in, I don't come in every day and say, employee XYZ is not getting their objectives met, they're on a performance plan. You know, we don't share that stuff. But we do tell everybody, here's the hill we're going to climb. Here's who's responsible for what. And you need to tell us when we set your annual objectives, how do you tie into the big picture? And you need to draw that line for us. And if you can draw that line for us, we've succeeded in sharing information. You take the lean, like uh, the concept of like everybody understands that how they participate in the in that putting points on the scoreboard, and like I think about how much manufacturing has changed, how much the empowerment of like the line worker has yeah. increased. Of you're you're not just a, a screw placer, right? I think about yeah. like the Toyota way and, and how successful they are from a quality standpoint. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me that especially in some of these organizations where you have really highly educated college educated engineers and you're not leveraging that potential brain power to do more than what the job description is by not letting them know how they could potentially innovate their own position to create drive greater value have you found that to, to hold true when you when you've engaged your staff and let them know like here's the objective you figure it out the the only business i'm aware of that you should put things in a dark box is the veal growing industry where you you put an animal in a dark setting and and hope the meat's tender um, i was pretty sure mushrooms were going to come in yeah. at some point mushrooms, right? you know? yeah i just i just think it's it's absolutely crucial uh they will get more fulfillment out of their job mm-hmm. number two they like you're saying they will innovate in their own job and guess what the third thing is they're going to help you innovate your business I mean, I get weekly suggestions from engineers or a weekly sending of interesting articles they read about the space where I say, thank you. I learned something new today. And that wasn't your job description to point out that or plant that idea in my head. And I always commit to every employee that you will be heard. And we will follow up with you to tell you if we parking lotted that suggestion you had or if it's being implemented. And I can tell you numerous examples in my career where an engineer has helped the sales process or a salesperson has helped make a better product. And what's great is you're having conversations about growing the business. Yeah. 
right? You're not having conversations about, I need more benefits. I'm not happy with my job because I think there is a connection to that lack of autonomy that a lot of people feel in their organizations. And now they want to, you know, put some medicine on it by having more time off from work as opposed to feeling more empowered and engaged at work. Well, this is, this is so pivotal. You, you grew up in a, in a family of four kids. I grew up in a family of six kids. My favorite memories were that dinner table where there was no agenda, but we, we talked, we laughed. Sometimes we argued, but we always built our relationship. And I want to have a culture where on Sunday night at 7 p.m., when employees start to think about the fact that tomorrow morning they have to head into their employer, I don't want that to be a, a bummer moment in their week. I want that to be, I'm going back to this thing that's really mentally stimulating, working with a bunch of people who care about me a ton and respect me. We build a better business. We retain more employees. And I love to see that these employees grow at a massively uh, great trajectory. And I encourage each of them someday to hire me when they're off doing much bigger things than I've ever done in my career. I think you bring up a, a very good point about like, you know, I know you, you've talked about it before, like focusing on A players, right? Mm-hmm. And do you believe, I guess when you look at an A player, is there an A player for you? Is there that maybe, because I think about the money ball situation of like, you know, there's, you know, the Harvard grad with all the, all the usual stuff that people, the traditional concept of like, that's an A player. Is there other things that you're looking for from A players? Is there something like if you said that's the type of person that I'm looking to hire? What does that person look like? Well, I think you better be pretty precise what your definition is. And my, my bias is A players do 20x what B players do. So I want A players. So how do you find A players? You better think long and hard. You don't just have somebody in for an interview. You define really rigorously up front. What are the competencies we're looking for? And how do we assess trajectory? How do we assess intellectual curiosity? How do we assess competitiveness and going to knock down walls to achieve their objectives? How do we do that for this specific role? And then we are very deliberate in the interview process. It's not five people coming in to ask 80% overlap in questions. It's you are here to look for competitiveness. You are going in to assess trajectory. You are going in to assess cultural fit. You are going in to assess that they're not a jerk. And we get together at the end of the day. And if we're all thumbs up, we may give an offer. If one of us is, I'm not sure on that thing I was looking for, we say thank you, but it, it, we don't have anything for you. So very rigorous in the recruiting process, very rigorous in the onboarding process. And we think in doing those things right doesn't mean we don't, we're not wrong still sometimes, but we sure have maximized our chances of being successful on bringing in an A player. Yeah. I, I hear you on the five people overlapping questions, talking, just asking random questions. And I always say this to people and like, so you've got five people who just printed out the resume five minutes before the meeting and are rushing with their pen and they're going to write some notes and yeah. and then you can't figure out why you have a hard time hiring the right people. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. But it, to your point is like the, the specificity of like, Hey, you're going to be assessing for this, right? Yeah. Where, you know, one that obviously you can have a great conversation about like, what does that mean? And start to improve the questions that you're looking to pinpoint. Do you extend? So when you're recruiting, 
because I'm a big fan of like, you've got to hunt for talent, right? Like you've got to go figure what that looks like. Uh, for us, it was, it became clear from working in the, you know, in services was we needed people who enjoyed servicing, you know, serving others, solving other people's problems. And so finding technologists who maybe were a Girl Scout or were involved in some kind of, you know, service organization or the, an Eagle Scout where it's like, those are the people I found to be super successful because personally what they wanted to do with their mm -hmm. lives, the technology was the means to actually, was the vehicle for them yeah. to do that. So do you look at it that way? Like, Hey, we've got to go create and we've got to like as a salesperson and as a person that understands how to grow businesses, you know, is that something that you're actively doing? Like you're always recruiting, always recruiting. And the other thing is I interview every employee who is going to join my firm. It's that important to me that I don't care what level you are. I'm involved in the interview. It's really neat when you focus in on the competencies. My company hired an ex-professional hockey player recently to be a prospector, somebody who's reaching out. He subsequently has become quicker than most anybody, a sales executive. He was a hockey player. He came right off the ice. We were so honed in, though, on what it takes to succeed. We wanted a team player. We wanted somebody who would work and train and who would hold themselves to a strong discipline, very competitive, interpersonal skills, team-oriented, all those things. We knew what those competencies are. We knew he was going to be a huge success. So I think one of the fallacies or one of the, the perils people run into is they try to hire somebody for the exact experience that you're looking for. And that may help you in the first six to 12 months, but that gives you very little information about how they're going to grow in your growing org. That's awesome. I have a million questions about who the hockey player is as a big hockey fan, but we're going to leave that one alone. But I do think knowing hockey players that have gotten to a certain level of success, like ECHL and understanding to get to the NHL and like the level of compete that that is, where it's mm -hmm. like, it, you know, before I had friends who'd gotten mm -hmm. to that level, I had no idea like how, how like I see, you know, we all have neighbors and people where mm -hmm. their kids are going to go mm -hmm. to the next level and understanding how rarefied air that really is of mm -hmm. the, you don't have to just be good. You have to be insanely good and lucky and timing. And like, it's just the math on it's insane. And to like, I, I think about it a lot of like for a person to be able to live in that, vague of mm -hmm. like this is how the what my life is going to go mm -hmm. it takes so much confidence and strength and compete and just really love it so I, I think that's a great story about like we're looking for these types of people who compete but i also think hockey is a very unique sport and like the concept around I, i've mentioned this before is like the locker room is such a a, a a central part of like hockey life as a team as like you know, you mentioned the family and sitting around the dinner table and, and doing that. The hockey, the locker room in hockey is just, that's where the team is made, right? So people who understand that team wins, right? Bringing in people who understand. Quick question I have is the, the person that you had, was he a captain? Was he an assistant captain? What, was he a, a grinder? You know, what type of role did he play in, in professional hockey? You know, I, I think he was a defenseman. Um, but the attributes you're talking about are absolutely right. 
locker rooms don't suffer jerks. <laughs> and, and you don't win a hockey game with one good player and, and the rest mediocre players. You win hockey games because you're a team. And hockey players come on the ice and they come off the ice. And they know, humble your ego. The second line is coming in. I don't care if you're the best center on, on the ice. You got to come out and take a breath. Somebody else is coming in and you better be working to make that guy who came in for you a success. So they want to win. They want to make their teammates better. They understand how to have fun and that the grind, a good laugh makes the grind all worthwhile. And they know how to score goals. So yeah, I, I love I love hiring ex-athletes. I love hiring people with chips on their shoulder. Uh, the common theme is they want to win and they have an internal motor that says, I'm going to do whatever it takes to win. And you can get that attribute from a lot of different backgrounds, but that's what I want. And I think if you go employee by employee at the company I work for or have worked for, you find a whole bunch of winners who have demonstrated that nothing's going to stop them from winning as a team. That's really awesome. There's a, Patrick Lencioni has got a book called The Advantage. He talks about a lot of things that you're touching on where it's the three attributes he's looking for is somebody who's smart, uh, hungry, and humble. And it sounds like uh, that seems like a lot of overlap for you, right? The hungry part, the compete, the never satisfied, always looking to improve. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you got an ego? Don't, don't come apply at my companies. Uh, we're, we're not looking for that. If, 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 you, if your self-worth is tied to the team winning, send me your resume. I agree with you. One of our core values is the thing we call humble hero because we're the backstage people, right? Yeah. Like our job is to help our clients achieve their objectives, win, succeed. So we'll never be like, and that's one of the things we realized is we needed people who wanted to be, you know, the, the stage crew, not front and center. But I think there's, there's a, there's a, a misunderstanding. And I think you touched on it. Of like humility doesn't mean you have lack of value to yourself, right? You're, you're not going to like reduce yourself. You know, you're not going to humiliate, right? Being humble is not humiliating yourself, right? So like when you're looking at people, like the people, like that team player, that humble I'm here for the big win, right? And it's funny, the hockey thing, like that's, there's all those cliches of like, you, you know, I'm here just to be, I'm just glad to be part of the organization, right? You know, it's like uh, it, that whole concept though is, is critical. So when you're, when you're interacting with people, are you trying to gauge, you know, the honesty of like, are they really humble? Is there things that you're looking for? Is there things that, I have a couple of my own little tricks that I use, but I, I was wondering, is there anything that you're doing to like help identify that true humility, humility with confidence though, right? Yeah. Confidence has to be there uh, and drive has to be there. How do you screen for these things? You have to find out what motivates them. And in my eyes, when you ask them to tell anecdotes about what is their most proud career moment or what is the best achievement that, that they've been part of, or what's the thing on their resume that they point out as highlighting them. If they use the word, we, 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 my team, us, I love hearing that. If I hear a lot of I, 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 I start to say this, this may be a, I or me person. Now, 
the individual plays an important role on a team, but I love the person who can portray their role. But the objective being reached was a team oriented objective. That's awesome. What are your tricks? Well, <laughs> uh, one of my most successful things is to ask people a time when they failed, right? Because failure, like you talked about, you, you know, none of us are getting out of this without some dents, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody's batting a thousand. That's not reality. Yeah. The only people who bat a thousand, in my opinion, are people who lie to themselves, yeah. right? And people who don't want to learn. Yeah. So they, they rewrite their own history. And like, when I think about like finding people I want to work with, I want self-coachers, right? People who yeah. you don't have to like point everything out to them. They analyze. You know, when you were, you were talking about the biggest failure. So I'd spin my logic around when you ask somebody for their largest failure, I don't want to see the person who points to exogenous things. My boss was a jerk. The market changed whatever. I want to hear introspection. I want to hear eyes yeah. in failure. I want to see here, here is a decision I made that I didn't do enough analysis, or here is, here's a, a team that I led that failed because I did a poor job of recruiting. Like on the, what's your best experience? I want to hear these on your, what, what's your failure? I want to hear the word I a lot. And I think that's a great point because I think when you get into the eyes and the weeds, right, there's some cultural ramifications there of like where people are from and how, you know, certain forms of speech happen. But I think when you when you do both, where it's like, tell me about your biggest victory, tell me about your biggest failure, mm-hmm. you should look for that. Is there a change? If it's we, we in both, that's fine. If it's mm-hmm. I, I in both, that's fine. Mm-hmm. If it's a we on the victories and an I on the failures, awesome, right? Yeah. Yeah. But if it's, you know... If it's the eyes on the victories and we's uh, on the on the failures, dig in the failures. I, I do think though that when you when you dig into those issues and the, the the outside factors, right? So one of the things I do, and this is I think a really, it's not like a one step question. So when you ask, there's three answers in my world of like the the failed question. Is one is the immediate where it's like I should have taken a different boss, I should have given myself 20 more minutes before I, I left this morning, that kind of thing. That's a good answer. There's nothing wrong with that answer. It means that they're constantly reviewing. There's the long-term answer of like somebody on our team, uh, one of my my best employees, like when I was at this company, I made a choice in engineering to like split the front end and the back end and like we we're going to merge them at the end. And he goes, and that took like twice as long. I thought I was going to speed things up. It didn't work out that way. And he's like, so I realized I'm, I'm not going to do that. Now, both of those require a certain level of humility just to even answer those questions honestly, right? Where you're in an interview. Now, I know people know, oh, you're supposed to like turn the negative into a positive. That doesn't work, right? People know that. So then there's a third option, which comes down to the we, right? We did this or this happened, our team. And so then I don't let that go. I always, I call it pushing on the bruise, right? Like you don't want to tell me that you made a mistake, right? So we're going to go and I'm going to say, no, what did you do specifically that caused this failure? And generally people are practiced enough to do it twice. And then when you're like, oh, so that's a we again, go again, right? Hit them a third time and then they'll cough it up. It wasn't really my fault. It's like, and we're done, right? And not that people are that they can't learn, right? It's not that people can't change. People can change. Humility finds us all as we advance yeah. in age, right? I don't know if I have time to teach you that, right? And so 
couple of things I look for is that humility thing, self-learning, uh, and also, are you good with friction? You know, because like if we're going to grow, like everybody says, I want to work for a growing company. Oh, I want to work for a growing company. Do you understand what 40% growth feels like? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, Try driving on the street with your head out the window because it's kind of like that. Yeah. So a lot of things come at you fast. Your job requirements are changing. Nobody's telling you what to do. It's time to adapt. Yeah. And like, if you're not good with that kind of friction, you know, I look at like your ability to endure and like deal with that kind of stuff is like credit. If you don't have any, it's worse than having bad credit. Because even if you have bad credit, at least you know what it feels like, you know? But if like, so a question I'll ask people is like, what's the biggest challenge that you've overcome, right? In the last six to 12 months, right? What is that? And so we'll dig into that because I want to know, you know, and people say, I've heard people say to me, well, you know, that's not fair, Pat. You know, what if they just haven't had the opportunity? And I said, well, like your, your hockey friend, he yeah. sought the opportunity, yeah. right? They put them, and you mentioned it yourself. You put yourself in the deep end of the pool. You know what you're doing. You know you're in over your head. Yeah. And you've built the capacity to get out of it. Yeah. And I think that's that's a muscle that needs to be practiced if you're going to be able to, because companies don't grow because yeah. Sean Brown's growing, right? Yeah. White Charge isn't going to grow because you're growing. White Charge is growing because everybody's growing. Yeah. Right? And this is this is going to sound crass, but I think you and I agree. I want to hire failures. Totally. Pay for them. You bought I, that experience. I, I want somebody, because if you failed, you've taken chances and you get, that's how you personally grow. And if you failed and you're introspective, you've learned and so I love hiring people who can tell me a story of failure. This hockey player I talked about, well, guess what? He was professional, but he was professional in Europe. He wasn't able to make the NHL. wasn't good enough. Guess what? He put himself out there and gave it his best. He understood there came to a point in time where he had to make a decision to, to play in non-U.S. leagues or earn an income somewhere else. He did some introspection and he said, I'm going to go for it again. I'm going to stretch myself. I love that. Did he play in uh, England? He played in Scandinavia and I can't remember where else. Scandinavia is good. That, yeah. That's a good league. Yeah. The English league, that's pretty good. There's also a Czech league. Anyway, so the, <laughs> I know far more about hockey than I've never played like competitive hockey. Yeah. Just played pickup, but it's. Uh, but you, you seem to have a proclivity for hockey. Well, there's a lot of ingenious <laughs> things going on. You know, I have a lot of ingenious friends. <laughs> you know, I don't even know if I use that word. No, it's exogenous, still, Patrick. It's still exogenous. Exogenous? <laughs> yeah, work on that one. I'll write that one down. All right. So, I'll see. so the next podcast, we're going to be talking about exogenous. <laughs> I think that's great. I think uh, this is a good wrap. I think we can come to, to an end here. I, I really appreciate, Sean, you being on. Uh, obviously, you had a blast, right? Yeah. A lot of fun. Uh, we wish you nothing but continued success. Uh, everybody, I, I hope you got a lot of value out of this podcast. I really think, you know, if you follow Sean or Sean's playbook and focus on things like strategy, team and culture, that alignment, execution, and most importantly, I can't encourage everybody enough have a vision, have a vision for whatever group you're responsible for, have a vision for your life, have a vision for your family, right? You, you need to spend time because if, if you can't see it, you're not going to get there, right? And it's like showing up for work and just doing the thing, it's not going to get you where you want to be. So uh, again, Sean, I just really want to say thanks for taking the time uh, for being on the show with us today. Patrick, my last, my closing thing would be 
Don't be afraid to fail. Keep it simple and make it fun. You're going to do some great things. So thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. Awesome. Awesome. That is a good wrap. That's the last thought. So I also wanted to thank our listeners out there. Uh, we really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us today. Uh, if you want to reach out to Sean, he's on LinkedIn. You can look him up. Uh, I, he's, he's a wonderful person. He's always offered to, to spend time and, and share his wisdom. So if you'd like to receive new podcasts as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.